This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. A tornado destroys Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Not just any tornado. Some people found its track for 90 miles, 145 kilometers. The U.S. Weather Service counts 59 miles of tornado damage along the ground, 95 kilometers, all struck with powerful EF4 strength. Are tornadoes worse due to climate change? Yes, but not the way we think. We will explore news and science of tornadoes. Other neglected science shows the amount of land set to be swallowed by the sea this century has been badly underestimated. In fact, I have a whole collection of missed and downplayed stories about serious changes for you. Then I will break the rules of Radio EcoShock. Instead of hearing from informed guests, as a longtime science journalist, I will tell you what I really think. Alex Smith, Unchained. Don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. But first, let's get to that tornado cluster that killed at least 25 people in Mississippi and one in Alabama. I feel for those families and their loss. People across a half dozen states went through a terrifying night on Friday, March 24, 2023. Some will never be able to forget it. Unlike hurricanes, this killer storm does not even have a name. We don't know what to call a cluster of 21 tornadoes, unfurling death, wiping out homes and business, everything in its wide path. And the question lingers, are these hellish winds going to come again? Did humans already break the weather? Yes and no. Tornadoes are not new to the American South. One thing has changed, likely with global warming. There are fewer storms in so-called Tornado Alley states of Oklahoma and Texas. The pattern of tornadoes has moved generally east, more into Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. That is new compared to 1970. But surprisingly, and despite some predictions, the number of days with tornadoes in the United States has not increased since the 1970s, even with climate change. When storm scientist Harold E. Brooks added up the numbers in a benchmark 2014 study, he wrote, Will global warming cause more tornadoes? If so, that has not happened yet. One study found days with tornadoes in America have actually decreased up to 33% since 1970, as the world warmed the most. I have seen some misleading headlines on all this, saying tornadoes are increasing with global warming. The relationship between climate change and tornadoes is not simple at all. There is a change as the world warms. When tornadoes do arrive, they are clustering more than in the 1970s. So, there are fewer days with tornadoes, but more days with multiple tornadoes. That is exactly what we saw in the U.S. South in late March 2023. 21 tornadoes struck from Texas to Georgia in the same day, with multiple tornadoes hitting Mississippi. We can say the same pretty well about hurricanes. A decade or two ago, scientists wondered if global warming would create more hurricanes, or typhoons, or tropical cyclones. They're all the same. What we see so far in 2010 is not more hurricanes, but storms which, when they come, are far stronger and more damaging. We just don't know for certain what gives birth to a tropical cyclone or hurricane. 
but the forces which cause them to gain strength once they come include primarily hotter sea surface temperatures, and we certainly have that, and it's well measured. Likewise, tornadoes can become stronger when more extreme cold fronts and hot air meet. We are getting those extreme temperatures. It would be interesting to know if tornadoes are affected by warmer ground temperatures as hurricanes are more energized by the hotter sea surface. Obviously, there is a ton I don't know about tornadoes, and likely a lot nobody knows about them yet. The best science I have found is this, a review and analysis of possible changes to the climatology of tornadoes in the United States. That's by Todd W. Moore and Tiffany DeBoer. It is an open-access paper from 2019. You can find links to that in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The Daily Kos had a good summary of some related social problems surfacing in this change of tornado behavior. After the March Mississippi tornado disaster, Mark Sumner wrote, quote, Yes, the climate crisis is behind more and more deadly tornadoes like those on Friday night, end quote. Sumner finds storms are shifting towards areas with more population, and that puts more people at risk. And unlike the plains of Tornado Alley, the geography of hills and forests further east makes it harder to see those deadly tornadoes coming. And there was a myth that tornadoes do not hit cities. They do. Of course, few people in that southeast have protective basements. Being unaccustomed to tornadoes, there are not many storm shelters. The small town that was Rolling Forks had no tornado sirens to warn people in the night. About one-third of that county's residents all had incomes below the poverty line. Another study on storm recovery found that white people were more likely to have insurance and they were more likely to rebuild. And that can change the demographics of a place following a devastating storm. Again, violent weather reveals ongoing racial injustice. Just last week, in a Radio EcoShock interview, Lori Laburn and I discussed the real possibility that humans will not be able to adapt or recover from repeated disasters during changing climate. This 21-twister night in the South sounds like another warning from nature. Do not upset the energy balance that makes planet Earth the sweet spot for life. By the way... I want to pass on a tip that I just learned about searching the net for answers. As Dr. Mushtag Bilal tells us in a tweet, quote, Don't use chat GPT for academic research. It creates fake citations to papers that don't even exist. Instead, use Consensus, an AI-powered search engine designed for academics. Ask it a question, and it will give you a summary of the top 5 to 10 real published papers, end quote. I tried it by going to www.consensus.app, consensus.app. This search engine does clear out a lot of misinformation. Keep in mind the results are not in date order, so check the dates if you want the more recent science. Climate papers from 1995 may have been superseded by more recent work, or they may be classics that still stand. So you can check the number of citations to gauge how widely used the paper is. Consensus.app is a good find for people with questions who want real, verified answers. We're going to switch over now to sea ice and rising seas, which is a catastrophe in the making. 
In last week's show, we investigated disappearing sea ice around Antarctica, like 90% gone within the last decade. As I said in that show blog, just imagine the loss of reflection of solar energy replaced by a dark-absorbing sea. This must affect the Earth energy imbalance, and that adds more warming. But the big story in my view is the way low sea ice enables more melting by Antarctic glaciers. I think we are operating with a wild underestimate of the coming coastal floods as sea levels rise, and there is new science showing the real picture. But before we get to that, even experts are still mulling over the latest huge science summary from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the last report we get from global scientists on climate change until another five years have passed. Given the rapid deterioration of weather all over the world, it is crazy not to have interlocking institutes of scientists working daily to build a global picture for all of us. We need reports not every five years, not every year, but as close to real time as we can get. Many of those scientists that we talk with say another five years of emissions will already be too late. For real-time climate reporting on actual events, the people at an organization called World Weather Attribution are as close as we come, but they are a small team. We need much, much more. One of the information bombs hidden in the recently released IPCC report concerns sea level rise. This summary was approved by over 190 national governments, remember? It says between 1901 and 2018, global sea level increased by about 8 inches, or 0.2 meters. If you had a dock half a foot above the ocean in the early 1900s, it would be under the sea now. Since the year 1900, the rate of sea level rise has nearly tripled, from about 1.3 millimeters per year between 1901 and 1971, and that's less than 0.05 inches, to about 3.7 millimeters a year, or 0.14 inches, each year between 2006 and 2018. Our changes to the atmosphere have tripled the rate of sea level rise. We do not know how fast the seas will rise as we continue to load up the atmosphere. Some scientists expect sea level rise may not be gradual. It may appear quickly, developing stepwise rather than through a steady increase. The IPCC reports, quote, Thermal expansion explained 50% of sea level rise during 1971 to 2018, while ice loss from glaciers contributed 22%, ice sheets 20%, and changes in land-water storage 8%. The rate of ice sheet loss increased by a factor of 4 between 1992 to 1999 and 2010 and 2019. Together, ice sheet and glacier mass loss were the dominant contributors to global mean sea level rise during 2006 to 2018. High confidence, end quote. As I mentioned, new science shows increasing sea levels will swallow more land than we ever thought. Dutch scientists Ronald Verniminen and Alusa Hauye released a study called New LiDAR-Based Elevation Model shows greatest increase in global coastal exposure to flooding to be caused by early-stage sea level rise. It's a long title. I asked them both to explain on Radio EcoShock. Ronald was going off-grid in Vietnam while his co-author was unavailable in Indonesia. 
I should let it go, but I can't. As the U.S. science agency NOAA explains, LIDAR, or LIDAR, stands for Light Detection and Ranging. It is a remote sensing method that uses light in the form of a pulsed laser to measure ranges, that is, variable distances, to the Earth. This generates a precise image of the shape and surface of the Earth, more accurate than any previous mapping technique. Our maps, including coastal areas, are all outdated. These are the same maps used by government agencies to plot where the sea will take over and where flood defenses, if any, could be built. In plain language, this new science shows, quote, land elevation models applied to date suggest that the increase of land area below sea level will be limited at first, but will go faster when sea level rise continues. When we apply a new and more accurate elevation model, we find the opposite pattern, with the fastest increase during the early stages of sea level rise. In one-third of countries, most of this increase will be during the first meter of sea level rise, and in almost all within the first two meters. We conclude that in many regions, the time available to prepare for increased exposure to flooding may be considerably less than assumed to date, and that better elevation data will support timely preparations, end quote, from the science. Most governments, following earlier science and mapping, assume sea level rise will come slowly, with the worst impacts arriving maybe later this century and into the next. The newly known reality is the first meter or two of sea level rise will flood much more land than we thought. More of the Mekong Delta of Vietnam will get salted and then flooded sooner. You can hear my 2016 report on the Mekong with Southeast Asia expert David Brown. I will put a link to that audio interview in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Most of Bangladesh will flood further inland and more often. Expect mass climate refugees from there. More of the heavily populated Nile will go under sooner, adding to Egypt's poverty. The U.S. Navy will have to give up its largest naval base in Norfolk, Virginia. Until this January 2023 paper, we did not understand how much there is to lose. Imagine, as the world population continues to expand toward 9 billion people, there will be less land for them to live and far less food from formerly fertile river deltas now reclaimed by the sea. The latest IPCC report is hiding a monster in fast sea level rise, and even that is very conservative, as we learn Ice World is losing rapidly to the heat. Right now, there is a global marine heat wave. Ocean waters are abnormally hot, from the Pacific right around to the Atlantic. Brand new science reveals hotter water is already reaching the bottom of the sea. That was not expected so soon. Okay, so now I'm going to break a long-standing radio ecoshock rule. The rule is, let the experts speak for themselves. You don't hear a lot from Alex Smith. I'm just a journalist. Kind of a plotter, really. Under the circumstances, I will talk now, for a few minutes, about the obvious question. What do I think is going to happen? And for what it is worth, here are a few personal thoughts about our common future. After 16 years of broadcasting, I should probably own up to my own feelings about our future, really. Start with this. 
The coming decades will be the most stressful and challenging humans have known since the 1300s, with changes into social and physical landscapes never seen by any human. The severity of change may increase beyond the 2030s to include mass death events. At first, these will seem shocking, as a million or more people die in a few months or less. Humans have seen such events on a much smaller scale, for example, during periods of mass famine in India in the 1800s. But the population of India even two centuries ago was a fraction of today's population, so death numbers will be greater in many countries. The challenges of trying to survive record, long-lasting heat waves, droughts that last for years, fire seasons that wipe out everything, floods, all of them potentially lasting months, plus storms stronger than before, and sea surges into cities and agricultural lands, it will all come to a population weakened by decades of disease. Things like floods and increasing heat can also help spread vector-borne diseases, like those from tropical mosquitoes moving north and south into new populations. The average human may have less energy, a damaged immune system, maybe lower intelligence for some, less stamina, and higher medical needs due to unrestrained repeated viral infections. As best it can, the population will be trying to support larger numbers of disabled and partially disabled people, even if the social networks fail, like nursing homes or hospitals. Most people will try to keep family members alive at home. That by itself is very draining, even more draining, if everyone has been damaged by the virus. Humans may have less vitality when the worst climate impacts arrive. Think about that. All those hard and messy times, though, I have no doubt people will still fall deeply in love. Many will have periods of happiness so strongly that alone would justify being alive. Even now, knowing what I do know, for several hours a day I feel some joy in life. We should not feel that we will lose the ability to be happy. We have not lost that. The drive to innovation and discovery, I think it's going to continue. Now that may sound strange, when the power grid gets knocked out from time to time as weather or the crowds rage. But once electricity and data are known, it would take a lot of damage over a very long time to knock it out permanently. I am not among those who imagine the whole world just goes dark one day due to an accident, war, or the ultimate hack. The Internet was designed for the possibility of survival even after a nuclear war. There is separation of national power systems. Most things are generally distributed. Yes, a few key switching grounds in America could go down on the net, paralyzing a lot of it, but I would expect new connections to be made. Solar power also adds a source of very local electricity for at least a decade or two. We are discussing the way science and medical research might be able to continue despite a general weakening and dislocation due to health and environmental threats. The juggernaut of science we have now may not last more than a decade or two, but some science may continue until the species really loses power and communication. Remember, some of the basics of science, including the makeup of gases in the atmosphere, were discovered in private labs using glass globes and early instruments before electricity. The same is true of mineral and chemical studies, 
astronomy was already launched with telescopes in the 1700s. Human knowledge and invention may continue, despite what the pessimists say. But it does look like humanity will continue to prey on the last of nature for a while. We have shown little ability for self-control of our consumption or desires. I expect nature to continue to lose species and spaces at alarming rates. This predation of the last of nature would continue even through and partly because of repeated crisis conditions. The economy of production and consumption will likely continue for the next decade or two, unless there is a mass revolution, a nuclear war, or some cataclysmic driver of change. Continuing consumption of the planet will seek out the last resources and plunder and waste them. It will drive other species out of their habitats, leading to chains of extinctions, which we will see only in hindsight, if at all. There will be breakdowns and supply chain problems that last for years. Some items never return. During those local and regional shutdowns, if the larger social system cannot cope, then masses of humans will range back out into nature looking for food. This is already happening in some places due to population expansion. Think bushmeat in tropical Africa. Suppose the power system and regional banks around Michigan, USA fail. After a few days without food, all those people with guns will go out and shoot whatever meat they can find. Say goodbye to ducks, geese, farm animals, deer, most mammals, and some plants. We need food now is the chant we need to survive. Even if that region gets restored to a reduced system, a repaired system, the wildlife has been decimated and some will not return. The point is simple. Whether the production consumption system limps on or fails in some places, in either case, more of nature will be damaged. The key, key question is, what are humans going to do? What will we do? Here are a few unorganized thoughts for you. Number one, life expectancy may decrease with a corresponding attempt to increase reproduction. This could mean humans return to shorter lifespans that were normal during most centuries until the 1900s and have, or at least try to have, bigger families. Now, the loss of life expectancy is already happening in the United States and in some other countries, but that is mainly due to COVID. We get a glimpse of how this all could work from a new study about those cute little lemurs in Madagascar and how they handle climate change. As published in the Proceedings of the National Academy, March 27, 2023, this new science sheds insight into the way humans may adapt to increasing climate extremes and continuing viral loads, which all tend towards a shorter lifetime. Note the government of the United Kingdom just dropped a measure to raise their retirement age to 68, now that life expectancy is dropping there due to COVID. The key point from this little study of the short-lived mammal in Madagascar is this, quote, The climate trends led to decreased survival rates for the lemur, as well as increased reproductive rates. The contrasting demographic trends have prevented population collapse, but destabilized the population by further speeding up their life cycle through increased reproduction and reduced lifespan, end quote. Well, look, in earlier centuries, humans often mated or married shortly after puberty when reproduction was possible. 
A 14-year-old male was already in whatever workforce or army that would provide food. The 14-year-old female might be bearing children. Average life expectancy was 35 or 40 years old. The average is slightly biased because it includes very high death rates of babies and mothers in those times during birth. A few people lived into their 60s or well beyond, but few. One of the famous warrior kings of England was considered very old and infirm with disease at the ripe old age of 48. Because so many children would be lost, there were large families, often as large as the woman or even several wives could reproduce. Are we past peak life expectancy? Exactly like the lemurs, humans may have decreased survival rates and increased productive rates. Given the coming times of extreme stress, decades of normalized crisis, humans may live shorter lives but try to produce more children, which could keep world population in the multi-billions despite numbing losses in mass death events. Have we already passed peak life expectancy? Of course, increased reproduction and compensation assumes that chemicals or radiation in the environment have not already increased sterility in males or females. Evidence is growing that male sterility in developed countries is growing. In that case of decreased sterility, the strategy of reproducing the species to cope with lower immunity during higher weather extremes and violent weather, well, it may not work. Then population declines, perhaps relatively rapid ones, say over a decade or three, That would reduce the human burden on natural systems, but only after one of those systems has been pushed into a hot world phase. A second thought, and maybe surprising, we may fix some things. Humans' responses to decades of crisis could be shocking. We may actually, well, you know, find some solutions. Adding to genuine understanding of how this planet operates, along with continuing innovation, may bring new unexpected benefits for humans. For example, we may find a cure for all varieties of coronaviruses, and perhaps a technology to help the body repair previous damage to the immune system. I expect anti-aging science to continue to advance. This could slightly offset population loss due to climate extremes. But how about this one, already in play? Humans respond to the long crisis by... Just staying home. Are you just staying home? Many people I talk with are. Walking the other day, we met an older couple in our village. They were staying home during the continuing pandemic risk. Not going out much, not much social life. They said they were house happy. Millions of us are shrinking into our homes, and for good reason. Actually, without all the flying and consumption, house happy could be better for the planet and maybe closer to the human animal we really are. Perhaps home cooking will increase health too. I expect the isolated cellular lifestyle, if you will, will increase. It may not become a majority of people, and it probably should not be, but that may describe a significant part of the population in coming decades, the stay-at-homes. In past times when a barbarian army arrived to a rich land with few defenders, some of the local population ran away. The majority probably stayed home, waiting to see what happens, hoping to make it through. That is where we are today with both the pandemic, climate change, and social instability. Poll after poll shows the majority of humans with any education 
No big trouble is coming. They are stressed and afraid in great numbers. They are staying home on climate change. A fourth response will make some of you laugh with disbelief. A few may switch off the radio. How naive you think. I say humans may develop a fact-based belief system as strong as religions were, leading us to live peacefully and properly with nature. We could return to a state of respect and awe for other creatures on this planet. We could aim to make the world richer, not poorer, to help and to do the least harm. No one can say with proof or certainty that this is not possible. Does a better humanity become harder to imagine just before that egg cracks open? Yes, we have to eat and find shelter. That does not mean the current carnival of destruction has to continue, apparently without any guilt or awareness. The first inhabitants of North America did kill other mammals to eat, but for thousands of years they did it sustainably. They carried a culture of awareness and respect for their prey. It was a tradition to apologize to the rabbit or deer for needing to eat them. Likewise, we could appreciate and live with plants and all creatures while limiting our numbers and impacts, not just to the maximum sustainable level, but to a low, sane number of human beings taking little as they travel through a short time of existence. It may sound like a dream vision of living well with nature, but we do not know enough to say this is impossible. All of our ancestors lived sustainably with nature before us. That may be our actual character, rather than the cancerous plague image of the last days of living. We may return to one strange species among many, rather than self-appointed monarchs and Cali destroyers. We may return to humble living. Even though that sounds impossibly distant, things may be closer than they appear in the rearview mirror. Some academics and activists are already working on various lifeboat responses, like managed retreat. This June, Columbia University will hold its recurring event, At What Point? Managed Retreat. The Transition Town Movement is quieter but still going. Others developed the Future of Humanity Institute and various attempts at deep-time think tanks to see a way ahead. Check out the new report, Future Proof. These may be the first steps towards surviving the future we made. We may actually prepare enough to keep learning and innovation alive, as I said, avoiding another dark age, which some call the delightenment instead of the enlightenment. I think that was Bill Reese, Professor Bill Reese, who called it the delightenment. But Nick Bostrom and Tony Ord, that's what this crowd is about, avoiding that loss of knowledge. And many others are working on this in less well-known ways. Human readiness and prepared tools may make the journey less ugly, at least for some people. Humans may respond better than our strong pessimism suggests. Who knows? We may develop many more positive social traits and even the ability to be happier with less. Nobody can guarantee that, but nobody can guarantee we go out in brutish violence either. We don't know. It is also possible civilization and the economy will shift towards rewarding caregivers. Volunteer aid is already badly needed, even before we finally recognize the wave of COVID disability. Some people devote their lives to helping the victims of disease and climate change, whether humans, animals, or plants. The new generation could be the greatest public service ever seen. 
Just as millions of men marched off to their deaths in war, millions of people of all sexes may go to help. That alone could lift up a better humanity. That could be a gift out of the tragic times. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Anybody can sell a novel or a podcast about the road or the Lord of the Flies, but the future may be less eye-catching and at least better than the worst version of humanity. Doomery is understandable given the facts, but Doomer absolutists have overreached. There is no certainty how this will all turn out. Anyone who says they are certain have fallen back into self-delusion. The physics of climate, the operations of microbial threats, these things may be known, but the human response is not. The last time we tried for realistic hope, it was on Radio Ecoshock with guest Thomas Homer Dixon. I got some critical emails you want to know. Apparently hope has become a dirty four-letter word. It's because hope has been so badly abused by the apologists and the green mass marketers. But there is a way things could change more rapidly than we currently imagine, in society, without being a false daydream. It is just a chance, but still, a chance. We may avoid the worst future. On this show, scientists like Tim Linton in the UK or Johann Rockström in Stockholm work through climate tipping points. And then they hope for social tipping points, and there has been more work on that in places like Oxford and Cambridge. History shows a few instances of revolution, times of sudden social rearrangement. Institutions and foundational ideals fall to be replaced by the new. A common example, sure, it's the French Revolution of 1789. The baby boom generation hoped the year 1968 would break down the walls of war, hate, and injustice. They didn't, but it was a start. The Soviet Union looked like an impregnable fortress until it suddenly collapsed in 1991. Societies can change rapidly. We need this one to change quickly, away from fossil fuels. But not just that, from the destruction of nature. And that includes destroying each other, because look, we too are gifts of nature. There is a strong new voice on this front. I'm talking about Todd Rose with his 2022 book, Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions. Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith brought this book to my attention in his recent YouTube video. Like me, and probably you, Paul has come to realize the big threat to our continued happiness and existence is not because we lack science or technology. We know, and we know how. We are missing something, something about ourselves. We need to solve the communal code in humans that leads to destruction. Todd Rose points to collective illusions. Think of medieval people burning women said to be witches. That horrible mass delusion infected everyone from royalty down through the village blacksmith. It was led by a male-dominated church that was supposed to protect humanity from our worst impulses. Later, allegedly in the modern age, Germans led mass slavery and execution of the Jews. It was all a horrible collective illusion. 
We desperately need to find out how malcoding of human minds develops and how to heal it. In the tradition of Radio Ecoshock, we should let author Todd Rose speak for himself. Todd was a psychologist at Harvard, leading projects investigating individuality and the mind. He is now co-founder and president of something called Populous, a Boston-based think tank. Rose became a best-selling author with his 2015 book, The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness. Here are a couple of excerpts from Todd's Big Think series on YouTube. This one is called Psychologist Debunks Eight Myths of Mass Scale. In a perfect world, our public selves, the way I behave, the way I speak, the things I do, are the same as our private selves. At its best, public opinion holds a mirror to us and it reflects exactly who we are. What collective illusions do to that relationship is turn it into a funhouse of mirrors, which is fatal to free society. Collective illusions are situations where most people in a group go along with a view they don't agree with because they incorrectly believe that most people agree with it. It's not just that we're misreading a few people, it is that the majority thinks the majority believes something that they don't. We are all part of creating and sustaining the illusion. We've known about collective illusions for over 100 years. But here's the thing, our cultural and technological conditions have changed to make creating and sustaining collective illusions so easy that they've just proliferated at a scale we've never seen before in history. We have found them almost everywhere we look, from the kind of lives we want to live, to the country we want to live in, to the way we want to treat each other, and even what we expect out of our institutions. And our job is to dismantle them so that when we see ourselves in public opinion, we are seeing ourselves for who we really are. If you create the enabling conditions that allow everyday people to reveal who they really are to each other, social change can happen at a scale and pace that would otherwise seem unimaginable. And here's how we do that. My think tank populist studies collective illusions and uses what we call private opinion methods, which are just methods that help reveal people's private views free of social pressure and other distorting influences on public opinion. And every question we ever ask, we always ask what the individual thinks and what they believe most people would say to that question. And that combination of methods helps surface collective illusions all across society. We have found them almost everywhere we look, from the kind of lives we want to live, to the country we want to live in, to the way we want to treat each other, and even what we expect out of our institutions from education to the workplace. The most damaging consequence is that an illusion in one generation tends to become the private opinion of the next generation. One of the most important collective illusions we've ever discovered has to do with the way that people define a successful life. It turns out that the vast majority of the American public believes that most people in the country care about wealth, status, power, when in fact, the opposite is true. The vast majority of the American public are focused on a more personal fulfillment orientation. But our kids are paying an incredible price because they do not understand that this is an illusion. 
They try to chase fame because they believe that's what other people will recognize as success. So if we do nothing about collective illusions now, our silence will virtually guarantee that our children and our grandchildren will have this view as their private opinion. We've known about collective illusions for over 100 years. And up until the last, say, 20 years, you could have probably counted on two hands and two feet the number of serious societal and collective illusions that had existed. Since then, that number has exploded. They affect society as a whole, but we are all part of creating and sustaining the illusions. Even when we fundamentally end up disagreeing, a truthful disagreement is always better than a collective illusion. Being aware that collective illusions exist is the starting point. The only way to discover those is the same way that you actually dismantle them. You got to have conversations. You got to talk to each other. If you understand that fact and you create the enabling conditions that allow everyday people to reveal who they really are to each other, these illusions can crumble in a hurry and social change can happen at a scale and pace that would otherwise seem unimaginable. Given the profound lack of trust in society today, we often look for the cause of that in each other. I don't believe that's true. Frederick Taylor is probably the most important person that most people have never heard of. Over 100 years ago, he wrote a book called Scientific Management, which they were about his ideas about how you create a productive economy. And he felt like the biggest problem in society was that we weren't very efficient. And so scientific management literally said, wait, the first thing you got to stop doing is trusting people. He went about implementing a systems-first approach to a top-down society governed by managers. In fact, he invented the term manager, and he made us all cogs where the system matters most. Because of the way our institutions treat us, by removing choice from us and fundamentally treating us as untrustworthy, we have come to see each other through that lens. But here's the thing. When you actually study honesty and trustworthiness, what you find over and over again is that the vast majority of people are in fact trustworthy. One of my favorite studies, it's a pretty famous German study. Here's what they did. They literally just randomly called people and said that there was a contest going on. And all they needed to do was flip a coin themselves. And if it landed on tails, they got a gift certificate. If it landed on heads, they got nothing. Now what's important is, nobody knows how the coin lands except for the person on the phone. So you would have expected, everybody says tells, takes the gift certificate, and the aggregate results are like, well, it's 100% tells, who would have thought, right? It's not what happened. It was almost 50-50 heads or tells. And in fact, it was slightly more in favor of heads, which tells me most people, if not all people, were telling the truth about how the coin landed when no one else could possibly have known. So it matters to us, not just that we are trustworthy, but that we are viewed that way. And yet we live in a society where our institutions continue to remind us that this is not true, that we are in some way 
untrustworthy. We can only interact with each other in one of two ways. We can trust people to make choices for themselves, or we can control those choices for them. It is a fundamental tenet of democracy that institutions serve people. But ever since Frederick Taylor, we have flipped that relationship. As a free people in a free society, it is unacceptable that our public institutions treat the people as distrustful. Because now we know that whatever efficiency you get from that top-down control model, the consequences in terms of human dignity and social trust are so damaging that that trade-off is not worth it. What we need is to trust communities to make decisions for themselves, trust families to make decisions for themselves, trust people to. If you want a trusting society, work to dislodge this top-down view of our institutions and give more power to people. Insist that our institutions treat the public with trust. But when we engage online, we tend to think that we're interacting with a reasonable sample of the actual population. But it's not true. Close to 80% of all content on social media is generated by about 10% of the users. That 10% tends to be extreme on most social issues. They are the vocal fringe. When you have a vocal minority that is perceived as the majority, critical mass of us will actually either self-silence or we will actually go along to get along and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is how collective illusions form. It's not terribly surprising that some of the first people to start to use these tools to manipulate were leaders who need consensus to conserve power. Venezuela no le temblará el pulso para combatir a los grupos terroristas. An example of this is Nicolas Maduro, the leader of Venezuela. Social media is a free-for-all in terms of who can shout the loudest and who can silence other people in the name of masquerading as a majority and manufacturing collective illusions. Your willingness to conform and your unwillingness to challenge what you think the group believes will actually contribute to leading the group astray. The solution to our online life is to get offline once in a while. The most important thing you can do is continue to have conversations with your family, with your neighbors, with your community. Don't carry that distortion over into the way you treat people in real life. That was psychologist and mind scientist Todd Rose explaining just some of his latest book, Collective Illusions. As you heard, Rose explains why humans could change more rapidly than we imagine. We have that demonstrated capacity. Worse yet, for the absolute doomers, Rose finds most humans have a better nature than we generally think they do. Todd's story about honesty in that telephone study reflects what I have experienced so often. Most of the people I met on the road, in big cities, and at the fringes in the wilderness, they were good at heart, even when there was little reward for it. It is no longer fashionable to talk like this, but Todd Rose finds and validates it in various tests that most humans try for good even while they despair about others. I don't know if that basic goodness can survive the new hate business online and false personalities in cyberspace, but the better side of people might still win. Even you doubters cannot prove that evil will triumph in coming years. The only honest answer is, 
no one knows. One thing we do know. In almost every scenario, the world will get hotter if we keep increasing greenhouse gases. There are a thousand ramifications to that, as you know, whole chains of change attached to that climate shift. Underlying them all, more heat, more energy on this planet. As you know, scientists try to estimate the amount of warming for an arbitrary benchmark, a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere compared to pre-industrial times. They call this equilibrium climate sensitivity. And it's important because it shows us how much warming we should expect for the greenhouse gases we're putting up there. The latest AR6 report says, quote, The very likely range of equilibrium climate sensitivity is between 2 degrees C, high confidence, and 5 degrees C, medium confidence. The AR6 assessed best estimate is 3 degrees C, with a likely range of 2.5 C to 4 degrees C, high confidence, end quote, from the IPCC. Well, I see at least two problems here. First, the untrained public might read equilibrium as though Earth reaches some kind of climate balance point when CO2 reaches the doubling point. That would be somewhere around 560 parts per million carbon dioxide compared to about 420 when I broadcast this. And it's much lower if we add in all the greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and methane. This is another case where the scientific terminology is misleading for the non-scientist. There is no resting point or equilibrium as long as more greenhouse gases enter the atmosphere and maybe even after that. Whether it's human fossil fuels or from land use or even from more natural sources like, uh, you know, methane from thawing permafrost or hotter tropical bogs. The second thing is the human mind is looking for a hard number to grasp. That's what we all want. The AR6 report settles on 3 degrees C of global average warming at the doubling point. We know from past experience with almost every IPCC report, their choices and predictions are almost always too low. They are institutionally conservative. Scientists are careful, and the report has to get approval from 190 governments, and some of those are great big fossil fuel producers like Saudi Arabia, Norway, and the United States. But the IPCC just said, with medium confidence, the world could be 5 degrees C warmer at the doubling point, which could likely come by the end of this century. We know a world 5 degrees hotter than the 1700s would be catastrophic for most living things today. It would drive us towards a mass extinction event that could include our own species. Listening to the experts, one could come away with 3 degrees C warming as a solid, safe number. That is what our minds want. Not so long ago, business reports on climate suggested we could settle for 3 or 4 degrees of warming. They said that would have costs, but it would still be affordable for civilization and the gross domestic product wouldn't suffer too badly. No one knows if that is true. Most scientists I speak with doubt the current economy, not to mention the current population, could survive in a 3 degrees C hotter world. But that's just, you know, what the experts think. The planet would be almost unrecognizable. In the last year alone, 2022, the European Alps lost 6% of their snow and ice mass. At 3 degrees C, the Alps and most other mountain systems would be bare, exposing darker surfaces to absorb the energy instead of reflecting it back into space. 
Great belts of deserts would girdle the world, across not just the Middle East and North Africa as now, but much of northern China where the Gobi Desert expands. The southwest United States runs out of water for cities or agriculture. The African desert moves north into southern Europe, into Italy, into Spain. Massive storms might form tracks just as we saw in California in late 2022 and early 2023. Hurricanes and typhoons may depopulate some Caribbean islands, South Pacific islands. Certainly higher seas would surge ashore. Many of the world's largest ports would be underwater for parts or all of the year. Hundreds of millions of people would have to flee formerly productive Delta lands, salted up by the rising seawater in the tables. Burning heat, lasting for a month or three, would make it dangerous to go outside. That planet becomes a lonely place with great vacancies where favored and useful plants grew and insects flew. Breadbasket regions may not produce a surplus for global trade. We have no idea what insects and microbial life will do in response to a hotter world. No idea. Some may multiply out of control, while others go extinct. We depend on those small things for food, even to process the food in our guts. An Earth 3 degrees C hotter, on average, is not a good place for humans. It is a curse to send our grandchildren to hothouse Earth. The IPCC report has one very compelling graphic. It shows the different levels of possible heating according to our emissions path. These are in shades going to red and dark red for the hottest. Then we see three human figures. The first is born in 1950, now 70 years old. Then a person born in 1980, turning 70 in 2050. And finally one born in 2020, turning 70 in the year 2090. On our current course, people born after 1980 experience a hot, disturbed world. Babies born in 2020, if they reach age 70, will live on that different hot planet, a world wildly changed in just three generations. There are signs that people in less developed countries, who are less dependent on the fossil economy, are ready for more climate action. The IPCC summary report makes clear that 10% of wealthy humans are burning more than half the fossil load. The poorest 50% of humans on this planet emit tiny amounts of greenhouse gases. Yet the poorest half will suffer the most from climate damage. They'll have the least capacity for protection or rebuilding. Climate refugee camps will become new slum cities, no doubt. The fall from fossil fuels... It's not so far down for the poorest people. When you have nothing, you have less to lose. How long will the poorest suffer in silence? At least a few children are speaking up, as we see in the school strike for climate movement. Here is the introduction to the We the Children podcast by then 10-year-old Zach Fox DeVole. Hello, my name is Zachary James. I'm 10 years old, and I live in Los Angeles, California. The climate is changing. We are nearing a tipping point, a place from which we cannot turn back, and we are racing towards it at record speeds. We, the children, are being punished for what our ancestors have done to the world and to us. Generations of policymakers and big corporations have made billions at our, the planet's, expense and have escaped consequence. Until now. 
as our futures are resting upon our shoulders. The shoulders of kids like me. Some adults don't even believe in climate change. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. Some days it feels like no one cares. That's why I will put aside my own time when I could be playing with my friends to record this podcast. We need to face the facts. Here, on We, the Children, we will be tackling our topics, learning about different climate phenomena, and speaking with experts and leaders in the field of global warming solutions. I may not have all the answers, or be able to solve the world's problems, but at least I know I have to try. And I'm glad you're here to help. Now at 11, Zach's podcast is totally professional. The kids already know, while we callously demand more of our high-fossil-fuel lifestyle. We're in danger of becoming fossils, too. I hope to speak with young climate podcaster Zach fox Devol in early April. That should be a treat. Seniors in the United States protested continual funding of fossil fuels by major American banks where they have their money. There was a die-in in Washington, D.C., a rocking chair protest, and thousands of bank customers threatened to withdraw if fossil funding continues. A photograph from that D.C. protest, March 31, 2023, is my theme photo for the Radio EcoShock blog last week. Climate awareness is percolating through all ages, from kids to grandchildren and in between. There is still some sanity out there. A new and better collective illusion could happen. It is not likely from what we see now. It is possible, and as Zach tells us, we have to try and keep on trying. From the famous farm in Tennessee, that visionary holdover from the 1970s, environmental lawyer Albert Bates told us, If the boat is sinking and I have a can to bail water, I will keep on bailing. I'm Alex Smith. Keep on with Radio EcoShock. <laughs>